0: Evening all? Oh, come on. Evening everybody! Okay, that sounds better. So I don't know how many of you guys follow my blog posts every week or my podcasts, judging by the vacant stairs, not too many, so let me just, (laughs) let me tell you where to find it. Truthistheword.com This message is brought to you by truthistheword.com So about two or three weeks ago, I was interacting and commenting on something that an American pastor by the name of Andy Stanley said. And he said this, it's time for Christians to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. It raised a Ferrari and a big storm of protest and articles and people going to and fro and so on. Now, just to put the context correctly, Andy Stanley is the pastor of what is arguably the largest church in the United States of America. It's a cluster of congregations that belong to one church. And it's over 40,000 in, in number. So he has quite a big voice, particularly in the States. And he has a seeker-sensitive model of church. So his whole idea is, let's not make it hard for people to come into the church, that in the church congregations they will then at some point get integrated, hear the gospel, join groups, and, and so on and so forth. That's his whole idea. And he says, the generations that are coming through and the generation after you guys are just not interested in things like the Old Testament. It's too difficult, it's too full of blood and thunder, and all that sort of stuff. And surely it is just for another generation. So he says, the Old Testament is inspired, but its season has ended. For we now have a better covenant. So it's time to unhitch. That's his whole thesis. I think he's sorely misguided. For starters, what did Jesus say? He said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To make them full, give them the absolute meaning, fill them out to the fullest. I have a strong conviction that we try and put any distance at all between ourselves and the Old Testament we disparage the Word of God, and we weaken the New Testament because the two, as I'll show you tonight, are totally linked together, strongly connected together. And if we weaken belief in the New Testament, then we weaken the centrality of Jesus Christ. For where do we find about Him? Where do we come to know Him? Where do we learn what He said and did? So I think it's an expediency done probably with the best motives in the world, but I think it's very wrong. So tonight what I want to show you is how Jesus Christ authenticated the Old Testament. And in so doing, he established over and over again his divinity. I want to join the dots for you between things in the life of Jesus and critical Old Testament events that happened and how he put them together to show that this is true in the Old And I am indeed God of both the old and the new. I want to strengthen your faith in the whole of the scriptures, not just the Old Testament. And I also want to give you some things that you could offer to the skeptical world around you. The folk who say, ah man, the Bible is is archaic and it's not for today. And how do you handle the slaughtering of the Amalekites and all that sort of stuff? I want to give you something that you can say, here, connect the dots, my friend. Connect the dots. I've taken seven things from the life of Jesus and I'm going to root them back for you and connect the dots with one book of the Bible only, the book of Exodus. Why Exodus? Because the Exodus story is the quintessential story of Israel. It's something that Israel, with Jews, even to this day, keep going back to. They, they see the origin of their very nation, their personhood and their position in the world as the people of God to the time that God came and saved them out of slavery in Egypt and took them through the wilderness ultimately into the promised land, the land which they're fighting for today. So it's a hugely important thing to to the Jews and also to the church. So that's why I've picked Exodus. Now the Exodus story starts with Moses and a burning bush. Moses was the adopted prince of, of Pharaoh of Egypt. He had killed a slave in anger. He knew that he was going to get into terrible trouble. He ran away. And for 40 years, he lived in the wilderness. He married a woman and started working for her father as a cattle, sheep, goat herdsman, the great prince of Egypt. For 40 years, he's looking after livestock. On one of those days, towards the end of the 40-year period, He's doing his business, looking after the stuff, and over there he sees a bush that seems like it's on fire, right in the middle of the wilderness, flames coming from this thing. He says, wow, what's that? Walks over to it, and as he approaches it, a voice speaks to him from out of the fiery flames of of the bush and says, take the sandals off your feet for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And he realizes he's in the presence of God. And it follows an interchange where God says to him, I've heard the cries of my people in Israel. I've seen their bondage and their slavery and and their pain. And so Moses, I am sending you to lead them out, to set my people free. And he says something quite reasonable, I think. He says, okay, fine, God. But you know, they're not going to believe me. So who do I say has sent me? And Yahweh, the great God of of the Old Testament, said, tell them I am sent you. Just those words. In Hebrew, it's actually just, it's called the divine tetragrammation. It's just four characters in, in, in the Hebrew. And it, it, it translated would mean the ever eternal one, the one who was and is and is to come. But its literal meaning is, I am. I am who I am. I am. Fast forward 1,500 years. The Lord Jesus Christ is walking the length and the breadth of the promised land. Up and down and he's teaching the people, first always to the Jews, always to the Jews first. The ancestors of those very people that were trapped in Egypt. And he's teaching them and he uses one expression over and over and over again. He calls himself the I Am. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's hidden in, in the usage and in the context. But as you go through it, it gets clearer and clearer. For instance, he says, I am the vine. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. Okay, it's getting clearer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then, in a stunningly clear statement, which is so easy to slip over and miss, in John chapter 8. He makes this statement. He's interacting with the scribes and Pharisees, and they're giving him a tough time as usual. And he's trying to show them that he and the Father, the great I am, the one of Israel, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, their Old Testament, and he are the same. The Father and I are one. He's making that point. They can't get it. They're arguing. And he ends off almost with a note of frustration. And He uses these words. He says... You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. Wow, that's a real strong statement. If you look at your English translations, you'll see that folk have added extra words like I am who I say I am or I am he. But that's not in the original language. It's been added by the translators to try and make more English linguistic sense of it. But the statement actually says you will die in your sins unless you believe that i am he's connecting the dots between himself and the ancient people and the the people of israel saying your god that you worship god the father yahweh the great i am it's me we're the same hey i'm the guy who spoke to moses out of the burning bush he's not a replacement for moses he's the one who told Moses what to do. Back into the land of Egypt. Moses goes back in dutifully. There follows ten incredible judgments that are poured out upon Pharaoh. Um, I can't go into them now. It's another whole sermon. It's worthy of another whole sermon. But in essence, he totally annihilates the ten gods of Egypt, one after the other. Every one of those gods of Egypt, he lays down low. And the final blow is against Pharaoh himself, who perceived himself as a god. Don't even know that. The Pharaohs thought they were divine. And so their sons, their firstborn, would then take that mantle and become deities in the land of Egypt. So the final blow was that he was going to strike down the firstborn of all living creatures in the land of Egypt. Finally, decisively showing who the true God really was and freeing his people. God then prepares the people of his name, the Israelites. He prepares them thus. He says, this night, prepare yourself for tomorrow I'm taking you out of this land, freeing you from slavery. Tonight, do the following. Prepare yourselves. Get all your clothes in place. Have your staff in your hand. Have extra food packed, you know, and all your stuff, because we're going tomorrow. And then he says, then for each household, for every family group, extended group that's living in a house, take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, take its blood in a container, take a hyssop weed, which, by the way, its end looks like a paintbrush, and dip it in the blood, and paint it on the doorposts and the lintel of your home painted with the blood. For tonight, when the angel of death passes over, he will look and say, I see the blood. Those are the people of the great I Am. and He will pass over and not strike them down. That's where the word pass over comes from. And then this is the part that really appeals to me. He said, now take that slaughtered lamb and spit roast it. I have to kind of recover my juices at this point of elders. Because can you imagine... There's about a million and a half Jews living in Goshen in the land of Egypt. Can you imagine how many families, imagine how many spit roast lambs are are roasting at the same time. The aroma must have been to die for, doll. (laughs) Then he said something rather strange, but it makes sense a little bit later on. He says, take that roast lamb and eat all of it. Leave nothing but the bones. All of you in the family must consume all of it. Fast forward, 1,500 years. Jesus, on the night he is to be betrayed, the very next day, he's about to go to the cross. On the cross of Calvary, he's going to take his blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, without sin, and he's, in a sense, going to paint it on the doorposts. And on the lintel to provide a way over so that death itself would no longer have a grip on all who would believe. Not just on ancient Israel or on the Jews. He's about to do that. So he celebrates Passover because he's about to die at the end of the actual feast of Passover. And he takes Passover meal for the last time with his disciples. He takes the bread of Passover and he breaks it and he says, just like we will do just now, He says, this is my body given for you, for you. Take and eat of it, all of you. Consume this into all of you. Then he takes the cup and he holds it up, full of sparkling red grape juice, wine. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come. He's connecting the dots for his disciples and for any other Jew that would care to listen and see. And they were steeped in the Old Testament, so they would understand a lot better than us. He's connecting the dots back, and he's saying, it's all true. The burning bush was true. The Passover, the, the lamb, all of that's not just a myth. It's just not, not just a fable that somebody's created to give validity to Israel. It's true, and I am the lamb. I am the saviour from death and through my blood to life. Back to Egypt. The next morning Pharaoh says okay my son is dead there's a great moaning and groaning in the land all the firstborn are dead I give up I give up I give up get out and the Jews are all ready with their rucksacks and the whole toot and they say child and they set out, and they start heading for the border between the land of Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula. It's divided with the last bit of the Red Sea. If you look at the map, you'll see the Red Sea comes and has a little sort of tails of into two little fork, a little fork at the end. They're heading for that location. Just before they get there, Pharaoh catches a wake-up, and he says to himself, Hey, what have I done? I've just lost my entire workforce. You know, like a million and a half people that have been working for nothing. Building all my good stuff. prunes and sphinxes and all that sort of stuff. So he gets his army and he gets into his chariot and he starts to pursue them, to bring them back. At this moment, the Israelites come face to face with the Red Sea. And they cannot get over it. It's full on. Winds and waves, and for as far as you can see, it's just water, water, water. What do they do? They look over their shoulders, and they see the dust cloud rising from the chariots. Over the horizon, these chariots in their thousands are coming to capture them. They cry out to God. And God, the great I Am, says to Moses, Hold your staff out over the water. Now, it is not Moses, despite what Charlton Heston might like to think, who parted the Red Sea? It was God. The account's very clear. For God came and created a great wind to blow on the waters. It must have been outstanding. I mean, He blew this wind with such focus and such force that it parted the water on either side. So that this channel was created right across the Red Sea. The people of Israel went across fast forward back into the time of Jesus Jesus does an extraordinary thing that at first made me wonder what on earth do you think he was doing he's with his disciples on the other side of the sea of Gennesaret otherwise known as Lake Galilee he's in the hill country there and he's teaching and it's becoming dark so he says to his disciples get into the boat and row across to the other side I'm just going to spend some time praying but I will join you later. So off they set, and they're not too far across this lake when the wind comes up and the waves come up and they can't make any headway at all. And they're stuck. They can't go forward, they can't go back. They're being battered by the winds and the waves. And suddenly along comes Jesus walking on the water. When I first read it, I thought, whoa, that's a bit sort of braggy, isn't it? I mean, why, <laughs> why is he doing this? He gets into the boat with them and suddenly they have gone across. They have crossed over. He's connecting the dots for his disciples. He's saying, The great I am who controlled the winds and the waves and parted the sea so that your ancestors could cross over. I am controlling the wind and I'm controlling the water so that you can cross over. For why? For I am. Wow! He's authenticating the crossing of the Red Sea as well. Despite what the scientists say, eh, it's impossible, oh, we haven't found any relics down there, etc., etc., et Jesus is saying, it's absolutely true. It's not a myth. It's absolutely true. I did it and I'm doing this now. And proof, show me somebody else who can walk on water, but settled. Back into Egypt. They've crossed over Red Sea. They're out in the wilderness, they're in the Sinai Peninsula, dry, hot. All that nice roast lamb is gone. All this cheese and stuff in their little rucksacks gone. And they're getting mighty, mighty hungry. So they do what all good people do grumbled like crazy. They moaned. They say something which for me is totally ununderstandable. They said this, oh, why did we leave Egypt? They had lovely onions and garlic in Egypt. I would have understood if they said, why did we leave? They had roast lamb in in Egypt, but they didn't. So God, the great I am, hears them. And I listen carefully to the exact words he says to Moses. He says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for them. I will rain down bread from heaven for them. The next morning, the Israelites wake up, they go to their tents, and the ground is covered with a honey-tasting substance that looks like sesame seeds. It's called manna. And they gather it up, and they eat it. That manna falls every single morning, with the exception of the Sabbaths. Because they weren't to do any work on the Sabbath. And every morning, they would go out and collect the bread from heaven that had rained down for them. And this went on for 40 years that he provided for them and looked after them for he was the great I am. Fast forward. Jesus is teaching in the Judean area and he is teaching this and teaching that and he goes on for a long time and he's gathered a big crowd. Uh, We know that there were 5,000 men listening. So that means there are probably between 15,000 and 20,000 people who are hungry. His disciples come and say, well, what are you going to do? There's no town around here. We're in the wilderness. They're getting hungry. They're going to fall down. They're going to faint. And There's small kids. There's babies. All sorts. And Jesus has compassion on them. They find out that there's a little boy there who had a really good mom. His mom had packed, not five loaves of bread, five little bread rolls, little flatbreads. And two little dried fish. Jesus calls for it. Takes those rolls and breaks them. Just like he did at Passover. And he gives them to his disciples. Who take it and feed 20,000 people. Bread from heaven. And then the beautiful detail. It says at the end. The disciples went around and collected 12 baskets full of scraps. Twelve, one for each of the tribes of Israel. He's connecting the dots. A bit later on, he actually tells them what's happened. He said, for I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. He he spells it out with words of one syllable. Connecting the dots. Saying, the manna in the wilderness, not a fable. True. I did it. And I've just done it again. Do you want proof? Who else can rain down bread from heaven? Who else can feed 20,000 people with five bread rolls? Back to the Sinai Peninsula. Okay, so they've got food every day. They've stopped grumbling. It's nice stuff. tastes like honey and sesame. It must have been real cool. I, know, I, I could handle that. They walk on a bit further and their water supply runs out. They look for oasis, nothing there. So what do they do? Hey, yeah. They grumble. Oh, did you bring us out into the wilderness that you would just kill us? Oh, you can imagine them going, oh, it would be better if we were, if we were back in, in Egypt. Now listen to what God says to Moses. He says, that rock over there, and it's called the Rock of Horeb. Go to that rock with your staff and strike it, and as you do, I will pour water out of that rock, and he does, and the water floods out. Now think again: a couple of million people plus all their livestock, and they all get water. mean this is, this is beyond supernatural. This is an outstanding miracle. Fast forward, 1,500 years. Jesus is attending his last Feast of Tabernacles on earth as a, as a human person. The Feast of Tabernacles, they celebrate for seven days and they all live outdoors in little booths. What are they doing? They're commemorating the Exodus. They're commemorating the time when the ancestors lived in temporary shelters in the wilderness. So it couldn't be more apt. On the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the highest priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher and fill it with water and come back with great pomp and ceremony and singing in the crowds around him and he would pour out that water on the altar of sacrifice the place where the lambs were slaughtered and burnt on Passover time that same place as he's about to pour that water out, Jesus standing in the crowd somewhere shouts out in a great voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me to drink. He's connecting the dots. Just as I provided water, physical water in the wilderness, so I am the one who is the source of living water that shall well up from within you for eternal life. And just to make sure That we understood for all eternity what he was actually saying. Paul comes along later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Explains it. He says, our ancestors all ate the manna in the wilderness. And they all drank the spiritual water which came from the spiritual rock. And then he says, and that rock was Christ. Clear, 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 clear. Jesus has connected the dots. It's true. It's authentic, and I am He. I am the great I am. They march on for a few weeks. And they then come to the place where probably the most dramatic event in the whole Exodus journey happens. They come to a place called Mount Sinai. This is a mountain on the top of which there's a roiling, boiling cloud. And there's lightning coming from the cloud and thunder and the whole mountain is shaking that they're almost losing their feet. They're scared witless for surely God is at the top of this mountain. They always believed that gods in the pagan nations were always living on mountaintops. So they were scared. God calls Moses, come, come my boy. I have some business to transact with you. So Moses goes up and spends 40 days and nights on the top of Mount Sinai. And when he comes down, his face is shining like the sun. And he's holding in his hands two stone tablets on which are engraved the Ten Commandments. As the years roll by, those Ten Commandments get amplified and amplified and amplified into what then became known as the Law and the Prophets. And the Law and the Prophets... And the Psalms then became the sum total of what we call the Old Testament. So he's coming down with the embryo, the genesis of the Old Testament in his hands that later gets developed fully. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them said Jesus so fast forward 1500 years to Jesus Jesus starts his public ministry with the thing that we call the Sermon on the Mount and it's Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 the Sermon on the Mount why is it called the Sermon on the Mount because I've been there three times And there's no mountains there in that part of Israel. Some tall hills. But it's not called in Scripture the Sermon on the Hill. It's called the Sermon on the Mount specifically to connect it back to Mount Sinai. The giving of the law. Because what does Jesus do? Those three chapters in in, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, have got one theme and one theme alone. Jesus is explaining the full and real meaning of the law. He's saying things like this: "You have heard it said, you have heard it written, that has been written. But I say to you, this is what it really means." And he takes some of the Ten Commandments. He takes adultery and he takes murder, and he amplifies them. He said, "You have heard that you shall not kill. I say it, or murder. I say to you, if you have enmity in your heart, you are tantamount to being a murderer." He explains to them what the law actually means. No, no, think about this. The law given at the hand of the great I Am. The, the, the thing that held Israel true for millennia. Jesus dares to reinterpret. He dares to tell them what it actually means. Who but God can do that? Only the author. I Am. I gave it to Moses. Moses. You guys have screwed it up real badly. Let me therefore tell you what I really had in mind here when I inscribed these things with my finger in stone. He's joining the dots yet again. And that takes me to the seventh incident in the life of Jesus that I want to connect with tonight. And it ties in with Mount Sinai as well. Jesus goes to a place called Panias also known as Banias, which is where the River Jordan first emerges from underground. It's the source, the visible source of the River Jordan. It's at that place among the pagan temples of the day that Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say I am? And then when they give rather feeble answers, he says, and who do you say I am? And Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, my father revealed that to you. They go from that place and he marches them off on a four-day journey. And he heads for a place called Mount Hermon. If you stand at Benias, Panyas, and you look out north, it's now in in the country of Syria across the border, is this incredibly beautiful mountain. It's snow-capped all year round. It's a beautiful, beautiful mountain. He takes his disciples some of the way up there. And then he says to them, stay here and wait. He takes his three most trusted disciples and he moves further up the mountain. And then he says to those three, now you stay and wait here while I go a little further on and pray. He doesn't move out of their eyesight. And they get a bit sleepy, you know, real faithful, keeping watch in prayer. And then suddenly they see something astonishing. They see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ being transformed. From glory to glory, his face starts to shine like the noonday sun. His ordinary garments, he was probably wearing sort of like um cream, beigey sort of journeying gardens full of garments full of dust and so on from the journey. Suddenly his garments start to shine with absolute brilliant whiteness. Can you imagine their jaws dropping on? What's going on there? And as they watch, two figures emerge and stand next to him. And they recognize these two figures. Moses and Elijah. Why those two? Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. The law and the prophets come. And what do they do? They talk to him about his departure, which will happen very soon. His departure from this world, his crucifixion, the time he'll go and finally join all the dots and paint the blood on the lintels of the gateway into eternity, the door to heaven. Now, do you know what the word actually used in the Greek for departure he spoke to They spoke to him about his departure. The word is Exodus. Yep. Exodus. Full circle. The dots have been connected. Suddenly a great cloud rolls in from nowhere shining with the Shekinah glory of God and covers Jesus and Elijah and Moses and hides them from the view of their disciples. And from the midst of just like from the middle of the burning bush in the very beginning of the story. The voice of the great I am, the voice from heaven cries out and says, this booming voice says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Absolute validation of who he was and is. The cloud then just dissipates it seems to just sort of disappear almost into the remaining figure because when the cloud is gone, there's only one standing. No more Elijah, no more Moses, just Jesus. The voice of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the law and the prophets all subsumed and brought together in one glorious man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's connecting the dots. Do you know who I am? I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Moses, I am the God of Israel, and I am your God. To the people of his day, his disciples, he's connecting the dots and saying, basically saying to them, Oh, my my tribe, my family, my nation, just connect the dots. Just connect the dots and you'll see who I am. And you'll know it's all true. And to us today's disciples, he's saying, Oh, my dear friends, brothers and sisters, just connect the dots. And you'll see how important the Old Testament is and how true and real it is. And you will know with a certainty that I am who I say I am. I am God. And to the skeptical and unbelieving among us, He's saying, oh friends, if you would just take the trouble to read and to think and connect the dots, you would know it's true. And you would know who I am. Amen.